Welcome back to How to Tickle Yourself. I'm your host, Duff McDonald, along with my co-host, Matt McButter. I'm very excited to tell you about today's guest, whose story is both similar and also very different from my own. You could use the two of us to showcase what the Indian philosophers are talking about when they talk about the one and the many and the many and the one. While we all share so many things with other people, we are nevertheless utterly, entirely unique. So let me tell you about Jonathan Kay. He's from Toronto. I'm from Toronto. He plays the saxophone. I used to play the saxophone. He's fascinated by Indian wisdom traditions. Same here. He's a big fan of Sri Aurobindo. So am I. He's a big fan of Debashish Banerjee who we had on here not too many weeks ago. So am I. But that's where the similarities end, because Jonathan isn't just any saxophone player. He's an internationally recognized cross-cultural jazz multi-instrumentalist. In search of non-Western ways of musical knowing, he moved to Kolkata, India for 10 years and formally studied North Indian raga music, innovating its expression on the saxophone as well as on the rare 21-stringed instrument, the Bora Esraj. He's also studied Japanese shakuhachi music in Kyoto. But we're not done yet. At the moment, Jonathan is a PhD student in the Department of East-West Psychology at California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco under the mentorship of none other than Dr. Debashish Banerjee. He's been studying East-West psychology and philosophy, specializing in Sri Aurobindo's integral yoga, as well as the non-classical Western philosophy of Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari. But here's where we're going to blow your mind. Jonathan's work, in his own words, aims to explore the transcultural horizons of thought and sound, and his dissertation will develop an imminent approach to musical hermeneutics. His, art, his artistic practice explores experimental approaches to composition and contemplative approaches to improvisation. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That was very, uh, very nice, generous uh, introduction, but excited to be here. present moment traveling town to town the mystery of the motion right here right now right here right now whoa right here right now so um Let's start with music. Uh, hmm. You know, you spent uh, 10 years in India, as I said. John Coltrane's obviously an influence. You've got an album out called the Coltrane Sutras. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about your uh, your musical journey. You were in Toronto and then you how did you end up in India and what happened? <laughs> well, you know, after uh, when I decided to move from India, I realized it had been 10 years and I never really initially planned that. You know, I, I first went to India as a young jazz musician, just looking for influence, looking for um, 
just, yeah, like I, I said in, in that uh, writing, like non-musical ways of knowing is sort of how I describe it now. At the time, it was really like I was being, I felt like I was really being drawn in to something um, that Indian classical music, North Indian classical music more specifically, um, it, it was offering me. It was very contemplative, meditative. Um, it developed these moods, very, very deep moods. The, the music, it, it really, um, as a jazz musician, it, it really uh, impacted me. Um, and yes, there were uh, great examples in the jazz tradition, like John Coltrane, like Don Cherry, um, who were looking to uh, other world musics, other um, cultures. And I, uh, I kind of took that cue uh, in terms of um, finding myself engaged in trying to fold other things into who I knew or who I was trying to become as a jazz musician. And one of the, the tropes that, that, you know, jazz music that guides the tradition of jazz, I think in my experience is, you know, find your own voice. Who are you? You know, don't, don't imitate the past um, because the past masters weren't necessarily imitating the people that became before them so much. They were, there was really like a uniqueness um, to, to what they were trying to do with uh, within the music tradition. And so, you know, Coltrane is, yeah, definitely one of my biggest influences. Um, he, was somebody that led to the spiritual, um, the cosmic. He, he was a man of not many words. So, you know, I've studied his life uh, quite deeply and his interviews and, and, you know, you have to take cues from, from what he's said. You have to take cues from his album liner notes, from his song titles. But uh, after he had a spiritual awakening, it really became about kind of finding that, uh, that universal power that, that, music seems to have that mystical or cosmic uh, consciousness that it may open up to. And Alice Coltrane continued that after John Coltrane passed away when he was quite young. But uh, I really felt like uh, I was, I was uh, inspired to kind of just continue some of their questions. Maybe I could put it like that. And it took me to India. And so uh, I guess, you know, my, my initial goal was, like I said, to, to be influenced by this music, um, to learn some of the modes, some of the rhythm cycles just to learn a little bit more about it. And then um, I did come back. I went there with my brother and my good friend, and we had a band called Monsoon. And um, <laughs> we composed music uh, using this kind of overview that we had learned when we were in India, in Calcutta, learning from our, who became our guru, uh, Shantanu Bhattacharya. And uh, that we worked with this band called Monsoon. We produced an album called Mandala, which you can find on Bandcamp. And um, it's really... Uh, part of that process of like being inspired by Indian music, kind of finding, finding how the jazz kind of the, the jazz world and the Indian classical world, as we understood it, had come together, could kind of, uh, kind of find some in-between space. Hmm. Uh, were you, were you, were you conscious, just a quick question. Were you, were you sort of conscious at the time of the fact that, you know, some very popular musicians were heavily influenced or had a period where they were influenced by India, you know, the sitar and the tabla, most notably the, you know, the Beatles had their period, but also the, the stones did um, the Yardbirds, uh, a few others, I believe. Like it seemed, it seems like almost a, a, a period that some musicians had or a, a focus. So, some musicians lent themselves to, you know what, we need to go over there and figure out what was happening in India. Mm hmm. Yeah, you know what? I think that um, I, there was there's a great book um, called Dawn of Indian Music in the West, which really kind of gives a, a pretty a pretty nice um, 
glimpse at that time in history um, where, yeah, people like the Beatles famously, you know, going, yeah. going to India and um, kind of being open, not only to the, the musical sounds, but the culture, the meditation, the spiritual. And, you know, that's that, I think that was, um, that's just one of those, those times in history that I think that I see as being really, really important because it, it did get into somebody like my life where, you know, through my parents' record collection, I was able to hear some of these sounds. I was able to then do a little bit more research. Uh, and, and I was drawn in by somebody like George Harrison, who was very explicitly spiritual, chanting Hare Krishna mm -hmm. in the streets of New York. You know, what, what does that mean, you know, <laughs> to somebody like me? And so, you know, I think that, that I, was, I was conscious of these things for sure. I think that I was uh, also, you know, it brought me to explore some of the jazz musicians that are not so uh, much of the big famous names that we we know as well, because it does the, the Indian music influence. It kind of it filters into the tradition and and other people that I had never heard about so much, and that was very interesting to me as well. So it it, it was an opening, I think, um, like the, that time period and and moving moving forward into the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and and so yeah, I embedded myself in, in this trajectory. Give our listeners a name or two that you're talking about there that are are that are below the the top fame threshold. Well, you know what I think that Don Cherry, for instance, is he's actually uh, by some is called the father of world music. And I grew up um, as a jazz musician, and he was his name. I knew his name, but he wasn't like he's not as famous as the person he played with a lot was Ornette Coleman. Mm -hmm. Ornette Coleman is a very famous name. Don Cherry is, I think, is is could be considered just as an important person and, and musical uh, innovator. Um, and he, he doesn't receive as much acknowledgement. Another, another simple um, example, but Alice Coltrane is a profoundly deep musician and person um, from what I, she's influenced my life a lot. And it's always, you know, you always hear about Coltrane, John Coltrane, but mm -hmm. Alice is there too, you know? And so as the, I, my, my involvement in Eastern wisdom traditions and music um, deepened and I realized that, her, I think she's she's a really important person as well. Albert Eiler is somebody who who died very young. He was an innovator of of the free jazz movement, and he was, um, you know, a little less. I would say he's not as much um, pointing to the east in his influence, but he was definitely spiritual in why he was doing this music and what he was doing this music. Um, um, the power that this music was invoking in him was a spiritual thing, and so that's a I think another uh, another important person I'd bring up. So when so when um, people talk about uh, Indian uh, spiritual music in particular, hmm. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm about to be already over my head, but they talk about sort of different harmonics and different there's stuff that's different from our scales. Hmm. Uh, is there a way you can summarize for a um, for an uneducated audience sort of what so like a fundamental difference between the two as a musician, like what does it change for you? Right. Okay. Yeah. Great question. Um, so Western music in general, you could say it's, it's narrative is it's, it's composed in a way that is, it takes you from a to B and it moves through using melody rhythm, but harmony is going to be privileged in the Western music canon. And in Indian music, um, the fundamental is fixed. So there's no transposing. You, you, the harm, harmony is not a part of their music. That's, uh, it's not a formal part of their music. It became a very formal part of, of 
Western classical music and jazz, uh, for instance. Um, it's you could say it's kind of the I would say it's kind of the master generator of tension and release of of the of the story if you're approaching it that way of of the music in general. Um, and in Indian music, they don't deal with that so formally or literally. You could also say that there are there is harmony in some way, but it's the the, the tonality of the music, the 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 key of the music. Now these are some ways to describe it. Is fixed, and that is an instrument that's it's function. The, the function of this instrument is to do that. It's called the tanpura, and it's a four stringed instrument, and it will drone on the either the the, the one and the five and the one, which is your your main uh, scale degrees, or the one four and the one. And it will just indefinitely drone and create the canvas in which the music, the raga, will be set to. And so in that way, if you wanted to um, visualize it, it's quite literally like a mandala. And that center at the, the, the middle of the mandala, the bindu is called, is the tan, it's really the, the, the you could say that the, 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 it's an infinitely regressive point. You can never get to the middle of a circle, right? And so that is sort of, I think that the the canvas, this this drone instrument, I think that it's it sets the tonality in a way that you're constantly circling around that center point, and it's constantly taking you deeper and deeper. And that's why I would say, musically speaking, you could say it, it's it's meditative music. It's very stable, tonally, uh, tonally speaking, harmonically speaking. That would be one thing that I think is really important to realize um, as well. Um, and in terms of the you know, it does rest in a different tuning system. So in the West, we have the piano, which has became, became a dominant instrument in um, Western composition and performance. And the piano is based on uh, equal temperament, it's called. So you, you'll break an octave into 12 equal parts. And that is that's something, you know, um, it's used in Western music. In Indian music, for instance, because the, the, the drone never changes, then there's no reason to uh, actually split the octave into 12 equal parts. You would split the octave into, um, into you'd use a different tuning system, which uses whole number ratios rather than decimal place ratios, like meaning that the ratio um, in equal temperament, they're all, they're not whole numbers. So if this is called just intonation and Indian music is generally in this system. So they're, they're tuning system is based on whole numbers. And it's a very beautiful thing, actually, when you are in a fixed mode or a fixed tonality, and you can play these intervals in their purest sense of like, you know, uh, an octave being one to one, um, a fifth being uh, three to two. And when you really hit strike those notes in the in a very pure relationship, it feels very different than when you're playing with a piano, for instance. Okay. And so, wow. yeah. So those are two things that I thought would be interesting and important to to bring up. Mm, so fascinating. So talking Truly. about you're talking about never reaching the circle there, circling around the thing mm -hmm. musically. Uh, that's a good transition to our man Sri Oriabindo, who mm. um, I've said on this program that no writer, uh, neither writer nor thinker, has ever grabbed my attention like he has. Um, and certainly not at the same time, right? His, his thinking is sort of unparalleled in, in its depth and import, but also his writing is hypnotic. I started mm. thinking of it when you're talking about the droning. There's a, he's a beautiful writer, 
but you'll get in the middle of reading something and you realize he's literally casting a spell on you, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's circling a thing in such a beautiful way that you sort of get with, like you're suddenly on this thing with him. Uh, but that's me. What, um, uh, you study him and you've chose to study him at least in part in, uh, in terms of your PhD, what is about, what is it about him that captured you that got a lock on you? Hmm. Well, you know what? I think that it's, it's one of those things that, um, it, it, the signs kind of started appearing in my life in very, uh, distinct ways. Um, so for instance, when I arrived in India and I found the, the apartment of that, uh, my, my guru, who I mentioned, Shantanu Bhattacharya, I went into his home and there was these two very big pictures, um, in the room that we were sitting in doing music of people. I did not know who they were. Um, and it so happened it was Sri Arbindo and the mother. And, um, I was there to learn music and I was very open to this, to the spirituality, the religion and, and, and whatnot. But I was really there studying music with him. But finally, as our time was coming, there's two weeks of, of classes. I took 11 classes, I think. And the last I, I asked, you know, who are these people? <laughs> and so that was sort of the opening of, of a whole new door in, uh, or in my life. And and there was there was signs um, that came up as well um, that that made too much sense when I think back to uh, back upon it. But my saxophone teacher, uh, my mentor in Toronto, who taught at Humber College for a lot of his career, Pat LaBarbera, um, he is he actually was uh, the saxophone player that played with Elvin Jones, who was John Coltrane's um, drummer. Mm. Um, and, and I learned um, I went to Humber to learn from Pat LaBarbera, really, and and he was a very close mentor. An influence on me, and he actually uh, on his first album uh, when I was back meeting him one day, not knowing this, I, I hadn't made the connection yet. But I had been in India for many years at this point, and I had been studying Sri Aurobindo. I come back to meet him in his office. I take his album off off the wall, which in his office to look at it, his first record, and there's a song called Aurobindo on it. And my mind was literally <laughs> like, what? He never spoke about it. He did speak about doing yoga in the morning to help open the body up and breathing exercise to help your saxophone playing. That's what he, he said. And Sonny Rollins was doing that as well, another famous saxophone player. And, but Pat never mentioned Aurobindo or any, um, anything about uh, the integral, uh, you know, supermind or anything like this. So I couldn't believe that. And so it, it, it seems as though um, it was, it's been in, I've been in the orbit of this, you know. So I think um, just to more deeply answer your question is that I, I, I think that music was really the focus of, of what I was. I was a musician. That music was, was the center here. That was the center of my, if you look at my life as a mandala or my, my kind of existential or spiritual, music was always the thing that, that I was circling around and, and trying, to, trying to find that center in a way. And it, it was at a certain point after learning raga music for a couple of years, I, did, I started to, uh, I think, be ready to read Sri Aurobindo. And I started reading um, the synthesis of yoga. And it made it made too much sense because it seemed like it was pure music to me. <laughs> mm. And it really related to the the music, the raga music I was learning. And so I think as my studies of raga music uh, became deeper and I became more immersed in this culture, when I started, I was living in India, I was living and breathing this this uh, this tradition. Um, I was living beside my my guru's house, 
very much a part of his his life. I was doing this music every day, sometimes up to 10 hours a day. That was a goal. You know, I would try to sustain long periods of practice. And but I would read Shurabindo every morning and it would just seem to, it was just so resonant with the music. And so that's when I realized there's something, there's something that is happening here. And my guru being a, a lifelong practitioner of integral yoga and devotee of Sri Aurobindo and the mother, it makes sense because he was teaching me more than music. He was teaching me uh, uh, basically the yoga of sound, the yoga of ragas. And so even though he never um, explicitly taught me integral yoga, for instance, we never talked about theory or things like that. It was always, it was all communicated through the music. And so the raga music for me was really the sadhana, we would say, or the spiritual practice, and it was an integral one. And so that's really the 10 years in India, I was really focused on raga music and, and learning and, and, and studying all of Sri Aurobindo and the mother's works, um, because that, that's what made sense to me. <laughs> they seemed to activate each other. There was a synergy, you know, they spoke to each other. <laughs> it's interesting. My mother-in-law is, um, you know, uh, a big influence on me in terms of sort of spiritual guidance and reading. And the one writer who she could never really sort out was Oribindo. Mm -hmm. And the first few times I tried, he was a little incomprehensible. Um, but yeah. then, but then at some point, and my wife actually says this at some point I caught, I got his rhythm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I know how to read a sentence of it for me. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, she says, if I read him out loud to her, she gets a sense of the rhythm of his sentences that she can't extract when she's just reading it. So the musicality of it, it's a really fascinating point. Hmm. It's like, there is definitely uh, movement in there that is not just word to word. It's something very musical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, to think about that in, in relation to the raga music as the model here or the, the yantra or the mandala with that bindu, it, it really seems to me that, that the raga acts in a very similar way as to Shirobindo's writings, because Shirobindo is not going to write and just get right to the, the absolute point where he's going to take you on a journey. He will take you down this alley and say, well, in, you know, in, in Buddhism, this is, this is one of, this is how things are thought about. This is one way it may, it may look. This is one limitation in Advaita Vedanta or in Tantra. And he'll take you, he'll take you on these journeys, which was really his engagement with the history of, of Indian spiritual traditions, you know? Mm -hmm. And, but I think that the, the, why does it feel like a raga then? Because I think that that the canvas in which it's happening is very much felt. It's, it's a presence that you could say is the, the infinite potential of that bindu, of that center point, you know. And what, that's one quote that I remember on my um, first trip to India, my guru said, and I asked him, how is it that you can sing this raga for hours? And it's, it's never repetitive. It never feels boring. It, it just keeps on deepening itself and widening itself and and he said, oh, well, the, the, the potency of the raga is infinite. And I was just mm. like, like, what? <laughs> and for years and years, I just could not, could not even conceive of that. But I really felt that after five, six, even 10 years now, I've been practicing raga music for longer than that. But um, there's something to that as well. It's like you, you get it. You, you kind of at times you get you get to a place where 
things start to become porous and they open up and you feel potentials working within you in ways that, you know, you could have never thought with your mind, but you are, you're, you're, the music is, is bringing you there. And I think in terms of that Bindu point, I think Sri Aurobindo, that was really the, that's the integrative point. That's the, you know, he has a lot of different terminologies that we could bring in, but I just really think that would be that point where all of this in, is relation. The many is in absolute relation to the one. And that's, you brought that up in the beginning. And I think that's really the, the whole question. And I think that question has been, you know, my dissertation is, is talking about this, how that shows up, has shown up in my life, the integrate, the integrative impulse, I'm calling it from um, Debashish's work um, and how that has influenced me musically and also how I see that in culture. So. So let's, you just mentioned Debashish. Mm. Uh, I stumbled on him, um, cause I was looking for someone to talk to or about Oriabindo yes, on this yes. program and, uh, and got, um, you know, landed at CIIS and, and ended up, um, I don't know if I even said this, Jonathan is the, uh, teaching assistant in the class that I am taking with Debashish that I decided to take after interviewing him. So um, we are in the same class every week. Uh, what is it, Debashish, um, in his own way, not quite like Oriabindo, Debashish is, is one of the clearer thinkers and speakers I've ever come across. Uh, it's, everything seems so simple uh, <laughs> when you're talking to him. Um, what uh, drew you both to to him and his work, but also to this PhD. How'd you, how'd you mm. go from, uh, being, uh, doing Coltrane in India to, to <laughs> doing integral psychology, um, as a PhD? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, I think it really started when I, after I was living in India for a couple of years and I'd come back to Canada, I, I came back over those 10 years, you know, on occasion, um, I think my longest trip was in living in India was almost two years. I really did want to stay immersed. It st really felt like home. Um, and I really felt like the, the kind of transformation and the transformative process, the sadhana that I was doing, I, I just didn't want to leave the, like the little space, the little, um, kind of little, like I sort of created my own ashram in a way, um, with music and, and so I was in India for long periods of time and I'd come back to Canada see my family, to see my friends. And I really felt like I couldn't, I, I was lost in translation. And not only that, but culturally speaking, I, I almost didn't feel at home when I was coming home. I had really mm -hmm. kind of like this process really kind of, it was a process of, of, of deconstructing myself and rebuilding myself. And, you know, even, you know, Carl Jung, um, who's an important thinker in, in East-West psychology department that I'm in, but he really felt like if you leave your own cultural container for too long, it's actually could be very dangerous. And I can relate to that a little bit because I really felt like I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't feel at home when I was back in Canada for some of those trips. And I couldn't express myself as, as clearly as I wanted to about some of the, the bigger um, questions, the existential, the spiritual questions. And I, I, I realized that, and I think this, I, I'm observing this in the world too, where the, the artistic life, the artistic practice, it can become everything and you, it, it can kind of create its own horizons and its own gravity. And 
artists aren't always, and I, I was a good example, the best at explaining what processes they're undergoing or what they're, ex they're experimenting with or what they're doing. It's more like it's beyond concepts, it's beyond words. And there's always going to be a part of the artistic practice, of the artistic work that is beyond words, absolutely. But it's like, well, how do we, how can we um, bridge that gap? And that became important to me because of the cross-cultural aspect. I think that in take the cross-cultural aspect out, it, it still happens. I mean, you know, how do how do um, visual artists, how can they speak about what they're doing to a, a musician or a dancer? Even within the arts, I found that you know, there's not as much dialogue. And I think that's really was becoming important. So how can I develop concepts and understanding? And even the questions, how can I ask the question that I feel in my heart or I feel pulling me? I just didn't have that kind of clarity of thought or, uh, um, or conceptual basis. And so I did at one point um, uh, later in my time in India feel like I needed to ground what I was learning from, uh, from Sherbanu and the mother, um, as well as other, you know, Indian traditions. I studied a lot of Buddhism. I was in the Himalayas a lot um, as well. And I really am attracted to Tibetan Buddhism, for instance. And, um, but, you know, in India, like I traveled a lot, you're exposed to a lot of different types of, of uh, spiritual practices, uh, different metaphysical systems, different um, aesthetics and icons, everything. Um, and I was, I was really curious about all of that. But I didn't know what, it, what also at a certain point, I didn't know how to understand it um, in, in the contemporary times mm -hmm. um, or as a cross-cultural individual, you know, and that's where um, I was searching for different ways to, to talk about the integral yoga, for instance. And I read Devashish's book, The Seven Quartets of Becoming, which we studied in our class. We've read the whole, mm -hmm. whole thing and, and it, it literally just blew my mind. It, it brought forward so many things that I, I just didn't have the, the conceptual apparatus to deal with, to understand. And it, it made, it seemed to, to make things so palpable and clear to me. And so I reached out and I contacted Debashish and, and um, it just turns out that we actually are, are really good friends as well. Like as him being my mentor, uh, my PhD mentor, because we share a lot of similar interests. Um, um, he loves music, Indian classical music. He also loves experimental um, Western jazz music as well. So when I was in mm. California, we went to some uh, free jazz concerts. We went to classical Indian concerts. We went to museums. Um, and in terms of the, the in terms of, uh, he helped me understand more of a base of where I'm from in the West. So we, we he got me reading some of the continental philosophers that he's quite, um, um, he's he's deals with in his thought and i just really took to them again i started reading this philosopher gil deleuze which you mentioned in the in the inter mm -hmm. introduction and you know before getting to know debashish a little more and coming to cis i tried to pick up some western philosophy psychology and i i really hit a wall i'm like oh no like it, i'm considering going to study with debashish and i know it's east west psychology and and philosophy to a certain degree but I couldn't get an entry point into the West. I started reading certain things and I didn't know where to start, didn't know how to, how to understand it. And it felt, some of it felt quite dry and not interesting at all to me. <laughs> but I started reading Deleuze, De Debussy. So I'll try reading this book. And I'm like, oh, okay, I, that's musical. I, I like that. You know? mm. And so this tradition um, that Debussy just spent his life working with and also creating, um, 
creating a container, which, which is sort of the horizon of integral yoga, Eastern wisdom traditions with Western continental philosophy, or you could say postmodern philosophy too. Um, but I, it's very alive for me. And so Debashish and I share a lot uh, of passions and, um, and similarities in, in many ways. So I think it worked out really well. And, and I really, uh, I didn't really know what I was jumping into in one way when I decided to sign up for CIAS, you know, moving from India to San Francisco was a big, a big change. Uh, but I was ready to come home. I was ready to kind of confront who I was as a Westerner and try to understand myself as a transcultural, transcultural being. And so my music is, is still leading the way. It's still kind of, it's, it's, it's where I experiment, where these, I feel like these two worlds can come together um, and interact. They collide, they mess around with each other. They, they create new things that I would never imagine. Um, but at the same time, East, East West psychology and my studies with Debussy have really given me a, a super strong foundation to think this through uh, the, the academic thought, through uh, act, activism, through a scholar practitioner model, things like that. So you, you talk about b- both Oriobindo and also Deleuze as stuff that's musical to you. Do, mm. Can you, when you, when you, as a musician, do, can you see your music? Do you see the music? Or do you hmm. just feel and hear it? Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful question. Um, yeah, I, I think that I would answer that by saying sometimes I do. And I think that other times I don't. And I think it, it kind of depends on where, maybe what, what kind of place I center myself or what kind of place the music centers me, another way to put it. Um, a way that I can make this more clear is that when I, um, when I do jazz, experimental jazz or improvisation or, um, you know, even j- like any jazz really, I guess, but I find myself closing my eyes a lot and I find myself losing myself in the music. I don't mm. see the music. I, I'm involved in this process that is like the collective, kind of the collective vibration of the whole band. And I try mm. to like, not even hear myself. I try to hear the band and I try to kind of allow that to, to come through my fingers and my, my saxophone kind of be a part of that. And sort of, sort of that leads to a kind of, I've had, I've had what I describe and uh, mystical experiences playing jazz in this way. Experiences that I couldn't understand. I didn't know what happened. I would lose track of time completely. Like I'd open my eyes and be like, was that five minutes or like 20 minutes? Like I have no idea. <laughs> So the, the, like these kind of experience happened when I was in a uh, student and I, this was why probably one of the reasons why I, I started looking into spirituality. Cause I was like, something has to describe this or has to help me understand this, you know, because I didn't have in the secular way that, which I grew up, there was no explanations for this, like what's happening here, you know? Um, but, um, so th- that's one sense of where I feel like I don't see the music. It's, it's a very raw thing. It's a very, it's a very, you're kind of, you're kind of you're you're in the middle of this very like this becoming this all multiplicities and many things and like this not one kind of organizing factor in a way on the other side when i started doing raga music and i uh, maybe i'd say five six seven years in and i started to become better like a lot better at it and i could kind of i was doing even professional level raga concerts in in india took a lot of preparation to get there but I really felt like I see that music and my guru describes it um, as he really felt like he was channeling the raga. And he said at times he could actually see 
the phrases as they came to him. And he would just look at them and then sing them. So, <laughs> wow. So, so it's really the opposite, the absolute opposite, where you have this absolute clarity and you're really, you're, yeah, you're really seeing specific things that need to happen. Now, raga music, there's a lot of very specific things that need to happen. And jazz music, I'd say a lot less, or maybe the more experimental times, you're really trying to avoid specific things that can be, you know, you're trying to trying to embark upon some kind of a new new thing, you know. So um, I think those are very different experiences. And in my cross-cultural music, I think that it really depends on the time and the place and who I'm playing with and really the what kind of music I, I guess I would be hearing or having flow through me that would determine that. So Matt, the um the one of the books that we're reading in this course, uh, Debashish edited. It's called Integral Yoga Psychology. Um, um, Jonathan's written a, a beautiful review of this that I found on his site mm. today. But in it's it's it, it you might find it interesting, Matt, because what it actually is 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 an attempt what Jonathan was referring to there to bridge two ways of thinking about the self or two ways of thinking, you know, of psychological traditions. And one is integral yoga, and the other is the sort of more analytic Western. Uh, mm -hmm. scientific approach to uh, psychology and they're and basically you guys are trying to build a bridge right so, mm -hmm. is it, yeah right uh, yes exactly yeah situating you know eastern wisdom tradition and specifically in this case integral yoga with into transpersonal psychology yeah so this is debashish is really trying to establish what he's calling integral yoga psychology which would be different than integral psychology, you know, which is also kind of coming, it can be coming out of the Sri Aurobindo tradition. Uh, Ken Wilbur is also known to be using the idea in the model, his own model of the integral. So he, he would do a different variety of integral psychology, for instance. But yeah, it's, it's, this is part of the cross-cultural work as well, which is why, you know, at the end of the day, I really get along. I mean, I really um, am able to learn deeply from Debashish because he's, he's, he's asking similar questions. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Well, look, it was a, this was one of the most interesting conversations we've had here. This was great. Uh, so for people who want to listen to, uh, Jonathan, he's got, uh, his own site, jonathankate.ca. He's a Canadian. That's uh, right. So jonathankate.ca, it's got m almost all your recordings on there, right? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I kind of have a discography there, and um, I guess maybe I just bring out the, the last thing I recorded, uh, or released, sorry, just a month or two ago. It's called "Becoming Song," mm -hmm. and it's, uh, it's, 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 it's solo album, so it's, it's me. It was done in the COVID, like the, the lockdown times. I got some recording equipment and learned how to use that, and I, I kind of realized um, Debashi should ask me to, to to write for the Indian Posthumanism Network, which is a, a website and a collective of academics in India who work on posthumanism, uh, uh, an academic discourse. And that's where, that's where this intersection really can, I think, finds a voice in terms of integral yoga and continental philosophy. There are people in continental philosophy that are working in trying to think of beyond humanism, beyond the, our kind of... Uh, our rational roots in the enlightenment and, and whatnot. And so post-human, post-humanism is a really, it's a beautiful 
beautiful discourse community. And I think integral yoga is a really, uh, it can be seen as an important addition to that conversation. So I started um, writing something, you know, for, from a musician standpoint uh, and from, as a scholar, scholar, or music scholar. And I started going through my archive and I realized I had a lot of little recordings that I, that I felt like, oh, that's, that's cool. I did that. I did that. And it, it just sort of happened. This is enough for an album. And so in terms of some of uh, what we've been speaking about today, more experimental approaches to um, this kind of uh, what I call in, in the, the secondary title, but trans nomadism. It's really transcultural, but it's also like, you know, trans, like there's a, a lot of different problems with thinking uh, about this cultural confluence of, of the multicultural, of cross-culturalism, of, of transcultural, of heterocultural. And so my work is kind of developing and trying to just bring uh, um, bring ideas and examples to how these different models can um, can help us, I guess, get beyond colonial ideas about musics outside of European music, for instance, and and so explore how these muses can kind of interact more more equally and uh, more democratically, if you will. And so this album is is exploring that. So he made that during COVID, people. Our guest uh, next week. Marco Benevento made an album during COVID. Uh, yours truly wrote a book during COVID. Uh, while it's been a challenging time in many ways, it has also uh, have, have given lots of people beautiful opportunities for creation mm. and for sorting stuff out that we might not have otherwise. Uh, so check it out, Becoming Song. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been uh, wonderful having you. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you uh, next Wednesday on Zoom. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Duff and Matt. It's been a pleasure and, uh, and all the best with, the, with your podcast. Cheers, man. Great talking Cheers. to you. So uh, there's Jonathan K for you. I, don't, I didn't know Jonathan. He's the TA in this course. I've spoken like five words to him, but um, looked up his site and was like, oh my God, this is... Uh, uh, he's the kind of guest we want. What an interesting guy. Wow. Super and, interesting. And a lot like, um, he had, there's a kind of deliberateness, uh, but also adventurousness to his life that I certainly do not have. I did not. Oh, it's think, in the, it, it's in the McDonald's spirit though, of like you some know, travel, but his traveling sort of and thinking through yeah. what he thinks and how he's learning and how he expresses himself and sort of mm -hmm. very clear thinking about his own thinking and his art and whatever, like even as a non-musician, most of that, you know, except for one or two things, once he's talking about ragas and tuning was very mm -hmm. clear to me. I feel like I understood what he was trying to tell us. Me too. He's a really clear communicator. And, you know, a couple of the analogies he used, I, I like how he used that, like the mandala, which I, I know a little bit about mandalas, right? Just from, you know, looking online or whatever. And we used to have this adult coloring books, Steve McDonald's. Yeah, adult, adult yeah exactly. Books. So yeah, Steve McDonald's adult coloring books. And then also we used to have this thing, we called it a mandala. I don't know if it was, but it was like this wire, wire kind of puzzly thing. It, it came from India. I think my sister brought it back and you could kind of like spin it into all these different directions and stuff. Right. It was like a, almost like a kid's toy-ish kind of thing, but it was a, mm -hmm. it was a mandala. But using that as a model, uh, he used it as two models. One was in in the um, you know in the raga music or in the Indian music tradition, where you have this tone that's set that's kind of at There's the center, a center of, it. of a song. We don't have a centers center of, of songs. 
Not right. really, right? It's different. It's narrative, as he said, mm-hmm. right? It has a chorus and verses as opposed to having a center and then you just kind of continue to play it in a kind of way you could picture in the background of some meditations or something, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 then the other one was, he said, in his own life, like if his life was a mandala, music would be at the center of his mm-hmm. of his life, which is kind of interesting. And, I, and it made me think like, what, what have I centered my life around in right. that same way? I, I mean, I'd have to give it some thought. I, d- I don't know if there, if there is one. You know, centered. it's interesting when they talk about awakenings, they actually say a lot, you know, people talk about what is your, what is the purpose of your life? What is the goal of your life? Uh, yeah. After awakenings, things get a little clearer. Like for me, the sort of um, hovering around this very topic or ish, but also just the, you know, the tickle of existence, like suddenly that made itself very clear as the center of everything. Yes. Yeah. And I got to check out some of the music he mentioned as well. I mean, Don Cherry is not, I mean, other than never heard of him. Yeah. Yeah, Never heard of him. I've just been looking him up here. The trumpeter, um, American legendary, I guess, American jazz trumpeter. So that's, he's always also right about Alice Coltrane. It's like, Oh, the other Coltrane. No, 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 I'm looking for John. Never listen to her. People just say, well, people say Coltrane all the time, right? And so you got you to gotta disambiguate. I had a fairly extensive jazz phase in my 20s and 30s, um, both because I love the music, but also it seemed sophisticated, right? So it was like, you know, uh, Coltrane was, was if, I, if, you, if you go back and look at my CD collection, he was a big, big uh, favorite of mine. I could not explain to you at all what he's doing, but something in his music always resonated with me, like even more than the other famous jazz guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, me too. I mean, I, I, I definitely went, I wouldn't say it was necessarily a jazz phase, but I would periodically, you know, pick up a uh, Miles Davis or Donald Byrd or like a, a, or Charlie Parker, like when, all, all of the kind of the greats or anyway, the, right. the more well-known ones. I, I definitely like explored their music over the years um, and always found it nice, kind of like lean back music. Like mm-hmm. it was great for kind of studying, reading, playing, you know, it, I never really got into classical music. That would be about as far into a classical yeah. art, you know, although, uh, although Coltrane art, gets a little gotta... disjointed at times, he, he wasn't always the one who I would put on to relax. Uh, it was more like a, a great background soundscape. That's right. So I, I got one for you. I got one for you. Okay. And, and it's so on point, it's unbelievable. So uh, Jonathan Kay mentioned Carl Jung, who is, uh, what, uh, you know, if Oriabindo was coming from the East, Jung was coming from the West, and they meet at an, the idea of an integral psychology, essentially. Um, I was reading for our class last night, the one that Jonathan is TA of, uh, an essay in that book that Debashish edited. And um, Carl Jung was talking about that. Someone was quoting him talking about how do we get to the truth? And there was a quote that said the melting, the melting together of sense and nonsense, which produces the supreme meaning. Right. So essentially it's the, you know, try to get the, the all the whole. And suddenly I was like, oh, my God, nonsense. Right. Nonsense yeah. is that which can't be grasped by the senses. Oh, so I never call really it, thought about it. Yeah. Right. Sense. So we call yeah. it nonsense. Yeah. I mean, even sense, even sensible fall like falls into the category of an I've got one for you, right? right. I mean, because you He's typically very think sensible. 
Yeah, very sensible. You think of it in in one way, but kind of forget that uh, it's root to the fact that like you're you're talking about your senses and your ability to actually make sense of it because you've perceived it through your, you know, Mm -hmm. your your sight, hearing, whatever. Yeah, that's cool. That's Carl Jung for you. Nonsense. Sense and nonsense. Unbelievable. Uh, So I got a um, I was looking for some Oriobindo to close us out. And I was looking for something that had a bit of rhythm in it because of uh, uh, Jonathan Kay uh, is a musician who, um, you know, as he said, I had no idea that he, w- that he was going to say he found, finds or he been to a musical. Um, so I pulled this uh, passage out from a narrative poem that Oriabindo wrote called Khalid of the Sea, an Arabian romance. And this is just a little piece of it. So they rode like a vision all the time. She murmured accents as of linked rhyme. Musical in a language like the sea. Accents of undulating melody. For sometimes it was like a happy noon. Murmuring with waves and sometimes like the swoon. Of calm, a silence heard or rich by noise. Of rivers pouring with their seaward voice. And leaping laughters, and sometimes was wild and passionate as the sobbing of a child. But often it was like the cold salt spray on a health-reddened cheek and glad with day. Right? I'm practically a musician when I read that stuff. You're a poet, and you didn't know it. (laughs) Thanks for listening, folks. (laughs) We will be back with you in a week. Cheers. Bye-bye. At the present moment, traveling town to town, the mystery of the motion, right here, right now. Right here, right now. Whoa, right here, right now. You've been listening to How to Tickle Yourself with your hosts, Duff McDonald and Matt McButter. You can help us by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. You can talk to us and see what else is happening on Instagram and Facebook at How to Tickle Yourself. This program was recorded in Studio B of the historic Rockledge Recording Studio and the Tunnel Under Arundel. Right here, right now, our original 16-part theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Paul Reddick and Kyle Ferguson of the Sidemen, with the brilliant Steve Mariner on bass and drums and in the mixing room. The podcast is produced and distributed by Storic Media. Our editor is Andrew Steiner. Our coordinator is Samantha Abramovitz. Our producers are Kristen Verbitsky and Chuck LaBella. For more information, visit storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C media.com. My love, my dear.